Welcome to the new year and episode number six of Developer Melange, the podcast about developing software in the 21st century, directly from Vienna, Austria. Developer Melange brings you regular discussions about everything software development. You can find us online on developermelange.github.io and you can follow us on Twitter via at devmelange, that's def, M-E-L-A-N-G-E. We are very keen on learning what you think about this show or the podcast itself. So please reach out for us on Twitter or leave your comments on our website. We appreciate all your feedback. And now, here are your hosts. Hi, I am Peter. My name is Paul. And my name is Christian. Today we have a special guest, Olga Repnikova. Olga is an agile coach and a scrum master and helps companies in... Uh, Business innovation, is that right, Olga? Yes, I try to help them. Hi, Olga. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you for the invitation. I'm very happy to be here as well. So, Olga, you told me uh, after listening to last episode uh, something interesting about uh, what we talked. What was that? Yes, uh, in the last episode, uh, somebody of you guys told that uh, the code is like a picture. And I caught myself thinking in... Uh, uh, trying to relate to code, what would it be if I would try to relate to code as a piece of art? And uh, uh, if you go to one of the companies and somebody say like, yeah, we follow the impressionism uh, here, and uh, somebody say like, looks at the piece of code and things like that, looks like Kandinsky in his in his like late years, or this is the Van Gogh masterpiece, or this is the Mona Lisa. And the whole ambiguity it brings, uh, it would bring also into the discussion of code. Mm -hmm. I think that's really interesting because I, th I think in our industry we absolutely lack uh, a sense for history and a sense for masterpieces, a sense for really good work. So I think it could be really beneficial to have some pieces of code that we could agree on this is really good code. Do you think that could be possible? I no, think it's an interesting idea. Because even on the pictures we can't agree. Some of the pictures are ridiculous and still they are masterpieces. Considered masterpieces. Yeah, but there is there are pictures that are considered, yeah, as you said, masterpieces and people know them, people learn about them, people know their uh, properties, you know, can say what is the difference between the different styles of painting, for example. And we would, I think we could... Uh, we could really draw benefit of having such such a body of pieces of masterpieces uh, without uh, from from our code bases that we wrote over the decades. So I think it's interesting that we don't have it. I, I'm not sure if we could have it, but I think it's interesting. I agree. Yeah. Maybe that's a topic for another time. Yeah, then. absolutely. Maybe if you'll talk about, you'll consider also the way the painters work, that they sketch a lot before they come to the final, before they're really ready with the picture. And so similar is to code. It is, because we model, uh, we do a rewrite, yeah. which is like we do it again. Yeah. Um, so. Of course, if, if you say um, painters are sketching a lot, then of course we immediately say, oh, that smells like big design up front and thinking too much and what else? 
Well, that's true. Some painters don't sketch. They just put the color on the uh, on the picture and see how it develops. And they layer the coloring over each mm. other and then... Or just use the bucket with the color. Yes. I know these yes. developers. Maybe, yeah. maybe, <laughs> <laughs> maybe it will be a cool episode on a different, uh, different yeah. aspects of art and art creation with yeah. the code and code creation. But I guess the problem is a painting, a physical painting, is not software, it's hardware. And so they, they do not have the tools for refactorings, for example, that is really vital to our but profession. They're overpainting in a way. Yeah, sometimes. they do. Yeah, but it's, it's just a, a layering it's a on top. It's a yeah. Interesting. Thought provoking. How are you? You wanted to ask something. Yeah, I wanted to ask what are your experiences uh, in for increasing the intra-team collaboration. So if you come to a team, and I've been to a client recently, where the collaboration between the members of the team, even with the, with the absolutely same profession, so for example the developers, uh, was ridiculously low. So they talked, from my feeling, way too less and it was really interesting for me because i am most of the time in in projects in teams where people tend to talk too much with each other and uh, i don't think that is really a problem and there i found a situation where people talked really, really too little with each other and i then tried to to hint to some things that they could could improve to to increase this in, uh, intra-team collaboration. So, what, what are your things what were that you the, do? What were the, like, the problems caused by that? Because that's just a symptom. It's yeah, like, absolutely. What's the, what, what's the problem here? The problem is that they had, and this was just one, uh, one cause for it, they had really large cycle times. So, cycle times when there was a problem, the problem passed one developer, the problem got via QA, QA sometimes, sometimes even not, uh, to the customer and the customer saw what they did, reported a bug, for example, and it cycled back into the team. And this took weeks. And the, the one that got the next bug, this bug that resulted out of the work of another colleague, for example, didn't even know that the other one did this. So they really were not talking with each other, but they always had the customer in between. And that took weeks. So you're saying that the problem was that there, there was no knowledge sharing. Yes, absolutely. And, and one cause of that might be that they were not be talking enough to each other. Yeah. yeah. Were there other problems? Did the code look like um, pretty much uh, segregated? You had uh, essentially silos and absolutely. well, defined interface because it's is it Conway's law? Yeah. yeah. The, yeah, the produce, produce thing reflects what how the structure is absolutely. in their organization. So what what are the tools if you come to a situation like this? What are the tools and the, the things that you tell people in such a team? How would you start improving this? I would ask if they were taught to behave this way because sometimes there were some training programs back in years uh, as uh, today's problem was yesterday's solution. Okay. <laughs> so maybe there was an extensive training and a design and the process design where it was laid down. People 
had to people had to behave in this specific way. Did they also talk? Didn't talk with each other socially. So after work, did they have some social gatherings, or was it? I don't think so. Too much. I don't think so. No. Okay, so for for each participant, essentially a solo work experience. They had some sort of I don't know whatever task board. Of they, course, they, they had all these agile toolings. Mm -hmm. So not so they had stand-ups and they used Jira. But that's another problem on the other side. Just use Jira for a collaboration tool for everything besides the stand-up. Um, yeah, but they didn't know what other other people were was coding and yeah had no clue about the things that they. Uh, it's too harsh, of course. For some some things, they they worked together. They knew something what each other was doing, but I think it was really too too little. And I have witnessed uh, exactly such a situation I can recommend to you. It's called Weinstatus. And I was working in the bank, which is a very serious environment and not nice. Uh, but the team next to my team uh, had every Tuesday at 4 p.m. there was the Weinstatus. And there was uh, uh, one member of the team was like uh, on the side. He was a, a farmer, so he had his own wine. So he was bringing a box of wines, so not just one bottle. He had always a box. And so at four o'clock, they opened the wine and the department head was coming. The client was coming. So it was, it was really fun. Everybody was here. They were drinking wine, actually, on work time. And it was surprising because sometimes someone from the business would say, hey, this is not working. And they immediately went to the machine and had a look and were drinking their wine. So it was incredible, uh, collaborative and, and team building. And also after I noticed it's such a cool team, so I was always joining their wine status, but it wasn't my team. And when I left the company, I took the other team to the goodbye uh, uh, lunch and not my own team because that sucked. Uh, <laughs> but that, so actually that's something that uh, if you can get like approval and even the, the department head was coming from time to time drinking a glass of wine and then they left. So like it was at four and at five, everybody went home. And that's like, informal way to, to foster this uh, collaboration where we just meet and talk. So is there, is there a necessity for social interaction then? In order to have, uh, let's say, during work interaction? Is there, I don't understand your question. Because we, we now brought up uh, examples where people would mingle and essentially on a, on a social schema, uh, yeah. not necessarily on, on forced by the work that they are doing. So they essentially came together because of wine tasting or mm. simply by coffee drinking. Yeah. However. Okay, so you mean uh, the other tools that don't use uh, forced alcohol? Not, well, I'm not, I wasn't even focused on the alcohol itself, <laughs> but rather the, the question whether or not you need to have social interaction to foster the professional interaction. I think the classic approach would be uh, peer programming on everything. And, and that's... Uh, also something I have seen, but it's not working for everybody. And that's entirely uh, professional. There's, you can do that without any, any social connection. And if you do everything... Without any sympathy at all. Um, no, no, I don't, think that, you, yeah, I don't think that you can do pair programming without any sympathy. And it's not good for introverts, because like yeah. they're really burning up, uh, kind of. So, but do you think that's possible in such a situation? Because it's like more kind of... Uh, like uh, it's, uh, I don't know if I can name your client, but it's kind of state thing, or it's a conservative uh, client, right? So it's 
No, no, you don't know the client. I don't know the client. So it's a different client. Yeah. Okay. So it just could be anything. So you could try to uh, make them pair, yeah. which would reduce the bus factor. Right. And it's usually That's one uh, of the things that are proposed here. Yeah. yeah. But what would be the minimum sign of collaboration where you say like, yeah, I'm happy? At least to see the small step in whatever direction. I think if people have have the feeling to know what it what her or his neighbor is doing. Okay. But and and um, going over the things that are talked in the in the stand up. So even if if it's another developer next to me, I have more or less a clue what's what's going on. Uh, this is more like caring and not communication. Yeah, it's just, actually but, listening as well. Yeah, <laughs> yeah just but yeah. to have some knowledge about what the others are doing. Okay, yeah. then uh, you can have a, um, a proposition of a fun game. I did a few times with the teams who were comfortable with things like that. Uh, after a daily, I asked everybody to stay and turned the board so that they would not face it and uh, asked to go in the round and say what they think actually what the neighbor is doing in a way. So I went like, okay, um, from my understanding, uh, Peter is planning today to do blah, blah, blah. And Peter would continue saying that as I understood, Paul is doing this and this and that. And so this struggle, the first struggle, and actually trying to remember what was said in the 10-minute span was amazing. Okay. Uh, that was a, a, a fun exercise um, that didn't end up so well, but that was... <laughs> <laughs> what happened? Uh, well, everybody survived, uh, but, <laughs> but uh, this active listening skills and then remembering stuff and not thinking, okay, what do I have to do, what I've done yesterday... Um, you know, like concentrating not on yourself only, but actually listening to the others as well. Um, that was a fun exercise. So we've done it a few times. Um, the, in the later stages, uh, people were more uh, convinced and uh, listened more and remembered more as well. So mm-hmm. this is the first thing you can do. Don't repeat it on the next day, because on the next day they will definitely listen to each other. But here you'll go. This is a small sign of collaboration because they never knew if I'm going to pull up this exercise or not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a, like a surprise exam. Well, we, we, we do it in, in a lighter way. We don't necessarily have each, each of the participants re, uh, retell what the others are doing, but rather have a random order of participants. So we're not going in circles, but simply say whoever starts and one person then has to pick another one. So they at yeah. least have to keep track on who already talked. Yeah, yeah. It's this introductory yes, this game is... that you do with children. You, really? You throw in this, uh, this ball of, uh, of, of threat and say, who are you? And then you are throwing the ball to the next one across the room. Mm-hmm. Does yeah. it work? Sure. With children, you're perfect. Sure. Because yeah. it has the rope, so you don't have to think about it. You just throw to someone who doesn't have it. Yes, yes. Yeah. This, exactly. This perfect. Yeah. Generally, I find your question very hard. Because I, can, I cannot make people talk that don't want to talk. I, I don't. I, I didn't have the feeling, at especially this situation, that they did not want to talk, but they didn't talk as yeah. much as they could. And but should. do you know why? Of course, I, I've learned something about the 
the situation. Yeah. So you learned already why they're not talking. I got some clues, yeah. <laughs> so other, other things that I proposed besides peer programming, for example, was and what I all, also did with them was more programming. Mm-hmm. I got, and, and my my feeling was it was even easier to get started in collaborating on the code uh, in in a mob than in a pair situation, because in a mob everybody feels more comfortable. I think maybe. Not the the person not the, on the keyboards, maybe, but it could be even cooler because then they start talking and everybody has some something to say or some some opinions. Yeah, I like I like, I like mobbing because you have a certain degree of uh, moderation yeah. that you can uh, bring in, so you can say something. You can like uh, like I usually do. Uh, I don't know how to call it like uh, dominate everything, but you can also say nothing and just wait what's happening. Yeah, and you can probably it's even easier if you choose a like a, an exercise that is uh, related from our work. So we are free to uh, criticize. Uh, we are also free to say something that's not related to production. Always production is always putting pressure also on opinions yeah. and and how to talk. So what we did, we uh, did a refactoring of an existing unit test from mm-hmm. the code base. That's good because test is less uh, yeah. um, related to production. How did that go? I think it worked out pretty well. People liked it. People said they didn't like the outcome, so they didn't like the end result. They didn't like the separated and more focused unit tests better. So they, they really wanted to go back to their three asserts intermingled between some production API calls, and they liked it better because they said, then we see what's going on. Mm. Okay, But they absolutely said they liked the process. They said it was the first time that they talked about code at that level mm. with each other. So they really liked it. And when I, when I do such events, I, I ask questions when we see some code, like, uh, how do you do that? And then, uh, what's your convention for doing that? And where is it written? And usually we have no conventions. And so how is it in the rest of the code? In the rest of the code, it's in five different ways. We yeah. don't want that. And everybody agrees, we don't want that. Yeah. Uh, so what would be the convention? And we can even come up, uh, we came up usually with conventions that we put to some wiki, and we want this and that from our code. Well, I think that's very powerful. Yeah. yeah? That's a way. Um, I found myself once in northern Germany where I had a feeling that nobody's speaking at all. And then I understand that it's my problem and not problem of people because they do speak, but way less and on just specific occasions. Okay. Sounds like Kota Treat in Finland. (laughs) 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 Experienced this. No, but I've met a few Finns. And they are also known to not be talkative because there's nothing to say. So what should you say? And I was told that like the master degree in uh, facilitation skills of retrospective is having Finns retrospect and then actually say something after the code retreat. So that's I'm not there. So maybe I'm on the level of Italians, Italians or Spanish people. I mean, they are very forthcoming with uh, retrospective material. But I guess uh, northern Germany is. Uh, the more Nordic, it's getting more difficult. So maybe you need some Spanish uh, developer and put in this group. Mm-hmm. It sounds weird, but uh, it's someone, uh, some talkative person. Yes. Yeah. Right. 
Do you think it will work? A talkative person? Will the talkative person disrupt, disrupt the collaboration patterns of this group? I think it would, but I think they wouldn't like it and they would mop him her <laughs> out. Yeah, we'd have to be a strong person. Yeah, and absolutely. We'd have to, like, uh, with a, with uh, support. Yeah, strong support from management. And also reasonable, like uh, having uh, bringing in good ideas yeah. and uh, asking for collaboration. Yeah, and being able to step back and to wait until the spark is growing. Well, that's a difficult one. Yeah. Is it then necessary that this team changes because this is then the team culture? Yeah, but it was obvious and that was the reason for my engagement then that there are things that could be improved. And mm. this collaboration style for me was one of the reasons why it is as it is. Mm -hmm. Well, I think silos and bus factor of one is, yeah. is uh, always a problem. So you can't leave it. But uh, yes, I think so. If you have like a team of introverts, an extrovert will not be happy because he will get no answers. Yeah. Or so the other will kick him because he's distracting them. Yeah. And, so, and So even for me, I don't consider myself an extrovert. But even for me, it was weird. And, and I was in a completely different position there when I came to the team. I was not a teammate for these few days I've been there. So it's just in, an interesting feeling to be there being used to talk is about it, things is it like silent Pardon? you can drop you can drop a pencil and it's like silent all day or yeah. yeah a little bit very polite very nice nice people absolutely nice people but very polite very silent okay so then the question could be or i'm i'm asking is this then what the people were missing because they didn't um, try it out Or whether they didn't want to talk. And they just, so either they didn't want to talk or they wanted to talk but didn't, have, didn't find it to be the culture in the team when they came. Interesting. So it was it became pretty much a, like a small snowball where, well, two or three people didn't talk that much. The fourth person came in and, okay, they did, they don't talk. I would like to, don't talk. And at the end, It's like, like six people sitting there, not talking because they never did. Yeah, and as we said before, if you are hiring to such a team, you probably wouldn't attract someone that is not really on that level of communication. If, if you are asking the team for opinion, which you should. Yeah. If it's just a management hire, you're just hiring anybody. Yeah, but even if, if this hire is coming to the team and looking around yeah. and staying silent and... You just hear the tapping of the, of the keyboards. <laughs> so I think... It could be really interesting. For me, it's okay. It's really a tough situation. Yeah, but I liked it. You like disrupting people's silence. Yeah, I like it. Oh, I know. I know that you do. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm one of those disruptors. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so I guess we had some some nice ideas what we could do in such a situation. So what's your conclusion then? My conclusion is more or less to be, so I, I think that's a thing that I didn't consider too much at the beginning, but that what I can take away from this discussion is to be more, uh, more listening to the team and if it's okay as it is, or if it is really a problem. So that's just one thing to consider. 
because you being disruptive can be cool, but it can be completely the wrong thing if you if you are disrupted in a in a violent way. Mm-hmm. I, I, I think I wasn't, but could be the problem. Okay, let's do this time. I think we have to explain this absolutely increased sound quality that you, dear listener, can observe now. For the first episodes, we just had a single microphone, and now we have each one of us has his her own microphone sticked to the to the shirt. And I, I would have another topic for Please. this time because uh, in front of me, Peter is sitting wearing a black shirt. There is written "I see that code." And underneath is chatbrains.com slash IntelliJ. Uh, and that's what triggers me because uh, for one gig I had to, I, I'm a C-sharp guy, and for one gig I had to dive a little bit into Java land. And for that I used IntelliJ, the trial version. And I have to say I really liked it. Uh, Java, the language, yeah, it's it's similar enough and I didn't dig too much into it that I started uh, missing the things that I love about C Sharp. Uh, the tooling was really cool. So I think IntelliJ is really a, a good uh, an environment. And if you're looking up resources on Java, it's incredible how much you get. And uh, as soon as Google started recognizing me as a Java developer and adjusting the, the search results, if I looked up something, it was really I was blown away by the amount of resources you find for Java. So even for C Sharp, it's not bad, but for Java, it's even way more on anything I could think of. Um, so I really liked that experience. Uh, I really was more or less okay with the progress I made up to a point where I I really was stuck with very, very, obviously very basic things about some wrong class paths or whatever. So things that every Java developer after one week would laugh about. But for me, at my first hours with Java, it was at that situation, situation an unsolvable problem. And that made me really angry because I, I thought I shouldn't stumble ac- across things like this. But that's the thing. So I I could make up Cucumber and a Spring Boot mocked web service and stuff, but I couldn't match it together. I could read a Gradle config and transform it into a similar Maven config, but I couldn't stick these two samples together, for example, and that really made me mad. Hmm. <laughs> but I like I, the experience. I think ClassPass problems are the most feared <laughs> and most known problems for non-core developers. So everybody okay. that I ever talked to about Java and it wasn't a Java developer had ClassPass problems, even from the early days. So where is my class? Where is, where is this? And you get this weird thing. So I, I see this problem still exists. I'm not having it. I guess as you're not having any... Uh, dependency problems in, in, in Visual Studio. But I do have, but I know how to solve them. Yeah, but I think that's uh, it's interesting to hear that it's uh, still here, this problem of the class bus. I have something as well for this time. 
So Peter, we too uh, joined together on working on a code base of mine from a private project, a Go project, where I pretty much work on my own. So without any peer to discuss any new issues, designs and whatnot. And although it's meant as being as an exercise project for myself, I still end up in some sort of a dead end because I can't grow beyond my own limits then at some point. And so having a second uh, person looking on that code and giving helpful insight and or ideas how to approach it and so forth is helpful. And I'm still getting ideas how to proceed, though private time is limited, so I still have to continue on my learnings. I'm very thankful for that, so thank you again, Peter. You're welcome. Yeah, Olga, I think you wanted to uh, ask something. Yes, thank you. Uh, I was hoping that you would help me to clear the question of technical debt. Last December I was reading that uh, Ericsson had uh, troubles. Uh, I could read the statement they published. Um, Ericsson has identified an issue in certain nodes in the core network resulting in network disturbances for a limited number of customers in multiple countries, 11 countries. And uh, the initial root cause analysis indicated that the main issue was an expired certificate in the software version. Mm. So um, that's a very blunt mistake. Um, I was also reading a book by Risto Silasma, who um, was the CEO and board of directors on the Nokia, and he wrote a book, uh, Transforming Nokia. He mentioned in his book that uh, the compilation time for the Symbian platform was uh, 48 hours and uh, the overall build time uh, lasted two weeks. So hmm. these are signs of technical depth. And uh, as I work with the IT companies, I see that some people in the products, uh, in the business departments who don't have an uh, understanding of the uh, IT feel that the term technical debt is not related to business, that it is somehow something else which is detached from business, which I look for, for ways to help them to understand that it is not. These two... Examples are very, uh, very prominent. I thought maybe from your experience you have some examples as well, that there was something, something fishy in the code, in the architecture, and how it uh, did not help to the business to strive. Your main question is, how can we make visible the potential relation between technical debt and and company failure, even on, in worst scenario. In the right? worst so the scenario, yes. Company failure, or so, at least is, is a reduced uh, yeah. uh, revenue or a reduced uh, like price that I get when I'm selling the company. At, at, at All when, the possible uh, implications of the technical debt to business. I can, I can relate, I think, to the background of your question that for me as a technician on the, on the technical part of, of things. Um, when we talk about technical debt, it's always a little bit about things that we let uh, slip through over the time and 
we bad people should have done better and and now we have to go to management on our knees and and admit okay i'm so sorry we have some technical debt in our code base and now we cannot deliver so quick as you would expect us to do because we did bad so maybe too harsh but this is more or less so the the feeling that i have sometimes i think uh people have to really be aware of that all all the things that had had been done that are now considered technical debt are are things that had a reason that they had to be done and so and many of those reasons are business reasons had been re- business reasons so for example you had to get out a release you had to fulfill some some contract to get something done immediately and so you had to step over things that you would normally do in a better way probably and and even if a code base is living for a long time uh, there are things that you did back then in a very uh, very deliberate way you thought it was very good and maybe it was good at the point of time then but now you you want to to massage it and 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 redo it, refactor it, some parts of it too, because you see uh, problems at the uh, at this point, and you see problems for the time to come. And but you maybe as a technician are not are not so really uh, engaged to to work on those improvements because they are maybe not re- immediately business related, but just help to mitigate risk mm-hmm. that might come on the horizon somewhere. And I think we as a, we as technicians should be more open and more uh, more actively communicating about the things that we see, and the thing and the, the fear that we have or the the impacts that we can imagine on business relations and on business stuff. I think that's part of our responsibility to be more open communicating about the problems that we already see and every. Every good technician or developer sees the problems typically in the in the code base. So you're saying we are not uh, communicating strongly enough the problems that will be there for the business because of the problems we have created in the code yeah. because yeah. of the business in the past. I I think so, but but it's not uh, it, it's not useful to be talking about too much about the reasons why it is now as it is because. Well, sometimes, okay, sometimes it is because I uh, don't want to get blamed, right? Yeah, I mean, exactly. And, and you already took that approach when yeah, you said yeah, exactly. we did it because of the business. We might also be doing it because we were incompetent. So there are different dimensions yeah. of, of yeah. technical debt. But yes. Absolutely. But we should be more more self-conscious about admitting, okay, we didn't. we don't like to think that we see now. We could or could not talk about why it is like as it is, but we don't like the thing we see now. We see some problems coming to us in, in the next uh, month or whatever, and and let's do something about it, and not be shy, and not put it away, as it shouldn't be like this. Because we know every every code base is not perfect. Mm. And how would you do this? How would you translate the technical debt to business people so that it's heard and it's seen and it's not technical? What would be the currency translator from technical debt into the business debt? Senior developer with the ability to talk to business, which is very difficult. <laughs> that that would that would be as a 
that's exactly what you're saying, yeah. Paul, right? So I'm, I have to make them aware what it means and that only you can do that. But a junior developer can't do that because it's also about vocabulary and, 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 and focus points of the business. So you have to talk about things the business is interested. You're talking about risk, for example, which business is usually interested. Yeah, but as Olga mentioned, what, what is the exchange rate? How do you trade the things that you see in the code base to, to kilo euros coming next week? So, to thousands or millions of euros that... Ah, euros, yeah. okay, money. The yeah. Ericsson, from the example, uh, is rumored to be paying fines to O2 and Vodafone and Japanese banks, so it's, it's huge for them. Huge, yeah, of it's course. It's huge, and it's a minor mistake. Mm-hmm. But if you if you tell us about build times of weeks, then it's a long piled up mistake. That's true. That nobody dared to care about when it was time to care about. That's or could true. because of business pressure. Yeah, but because probably they now, said, now the pressure is gone away because pro- business has gone away. Probably the probably they didn't like it. And it was probably of course technical people sure. said, that's a problem. We cannot react. Sure. We don't know. Sure. And, uh, so is it actually their fault then? Or is it a, was it business decision till the end? So whose fault is it? To me, this sounds like a bet and a race. Uh-huh. The, the bet is that whatever we are building, we are accepting that we are building in some crap, whether, whether it be, be now consciously or unconsciously because of our failure to, to realize the bad things we do, we do. And the race is that whatever we have built is being outdated or replaced by something else that might have been also be built part of, in, in, uh, under pressure with its own faults. And it's also betting to be replaced by something better in, in time. So the example could be like this uh, invalidated certificate, which was meant to be 10 years holding up on 10, 10 years and perhaps, I assume I have no idea how it went down, they back then said, okay, this will be gone in 10 years and by then it should have been replaced. And I've heard exactly that from mobile developers, that because next year there will be relaunch. Hmm. There's no point in doing anything with this application because next year there will be relaunch because yeah, every year there is relaunch. And that can be a sensible decision. Yeah, but it's already has, uh, like, then you're building the software in a way that next year there will be relaunch, so you're not building it. You're building it in, in that way that it survives one year. Yeah, but it, I think that's the point of the, of the term technical debt, that it's a sensible decision to say we know the problem, we see the problem, we could do better, or we, we could do something about it, but we won't do because. And we make it a deliberate decision. But the business doesn't know about it. Because yeah, just that's the, develop, the that's developer just says there will be a relaunch, so who cares? Yeah, that's a problem, of course. I'm kind of feeling we are lo- missing the point, because we are always addressing it from our perspective. And usually people, uh, all developers I meet, would like to change something, but they're not given the time, or they are not able to communicate in a way, so can we turn it around? So how, how can it be explained, or? With all these things here, like again, from your perspective, it's already is in place. So there's some awareness from outside that we need it, and so they're looking at it. And, and I really like your company for that, like your, your uh, employer, because it's always a focus on quality. But what about situations where it's not the case? And here we are back at the exchange rate. How can we translate it to money? 
That's what the business understands. Yeah, you know? and cares about. Well, some people really can do that. So they use a language that makes it clear that this this intended wrongly intended line costs you this and that. Right. right. So I uh, I would say one maybe easy thing would be to measure the problems to have during your sprints or working on a feature that you can bind back to some existing technical problems in the code base. So if you would dare to say, okay, this implementing this feature took us 3.5 days, it would have been done in probably 3.0 or in 2.5 days if you wouldn't have this problem in the code base then you can take this number, this increased effort for implementing this feature, and you can extrapolate it on some release, whatever. But that would really need a disciplined uh, login of Absolutely. time, because it's like one task, but two different things you were doing. You were cleaning up before, and then you were implementing. Absolutely. There is this, I, I saw this um, tweet from someone who who proposed a system to tag, uh, to, to tag all the commits with some prefixes. I think Alu Belshi was it. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Telling what was the, the topic of this commit. So is it a refactoring? Is it implementing a feature? Is it fixing a bug? Is it redoing something you already had done? And if you have tags like this, it maybe could be even somehow reasonable to make an automated um, some get some data of your, of your commit history okay so I mean starting to analyze what you have <clears throat> what you are working with currently and then I like take this for months half a year a year and then say okay we are working on this so so uh, that much we had these problems for instance and you can see mm. from that that took us uh, 10%, 20% of our total time. Could be an approach. So your goal is to visualize the work not on a revenue generating features. Mm -hmm. So the other work we have to do in order to do that. And the promise is that we wouldn't have to do this work if our code would be nice. Yes. Which is the promise. We don't know. Yeah, okay, we and, then the, and then we would have to do experiments. You would have to say, okay, Give me X days. Yeah, and then afterwards, it would need to be faster. For yeah. this 10% or whatever yeah. we measured. Exactly. So that, that could be a conversation on a, on, a, on a level that business can relate to. Mm. What do you think? Um, I think this is a valid approach. I'm, I'm not sure if you can uh, measure time a feature and then compare it or give a promise then it will be like 10% less time. I mean, this is a, a bet as well. It's a bet, yeah. It's, I would it's not a bet and it's express it as a... Maybe as a the, the next year or after half a year, the half of the team is changes and you have junior developers and everything takes even longer. And so sure. this promise is not being kept. But I was... I was thinking that maybe you can share some stories where you saw that something epically bad happened in the companies who ignored the voices of the technicians. Because mm -hmm. I think in the, first, in the first step is the understanding of what could happen. You mean mm -hmm. uh, the business people are not even aware that it could happen to them? Yeah. But most of them complain that Software is so expensive. 
so they are aware in a certain certain kind of for instance yes and so they don't want to get it even more expensive yes. to fix some things that yes. don't give anything for the revenue yeah and i think stories as you brought it can be helpful in one way if you say even the, the back then big players fell over such problems mm -hmm. but on the other hand it can be problematic because they say if you, if we talk about uh, 40 out 40 out 48 hours of build time for example everybody would say oh, we don't have this of course today with the continuous blah and and so that's not our problem so that could be the problem to to be to feeling yourself on the safe side of the history and of course you don't fall across this two weeks build time but you fall across other things but yes. nowadays, do we have that much proof that it really exists What? So how many cases do we know that companies died because of some, maybe it's just... Yeah, maybe it's just uh, anecdotal yeah, evidence. Yeah, it's just yeah. five out of one million companies or something. Okay, so, so probability is low enough, so it probably call. will not be us. Right? So it's, uh, <laughs> you, you mentioned two. I, I mentioned two. If I'll go and search, I'll find I, the prominent examples which, are pro which were prominent because it was an issue for lots of customers. Yeah. And companies had to release it, and the media was interested because these are very interesting companies and internationally well known. But I think there are cases like this also in the local communities, which you know as a developer. And despite the fact that the witness could be anecdotal, it's well, I still know one case. I it's think. still valid. A U.S. case, which was of night limited. That had some um, bug in the. Okay, it was a trading platform, so maybe it was uh, it was uh, rightly uh, dying. Is it? So, <laughs> yeah. uh, it had some bug, and then it was uh, like losing ten thousand dollars every seconds for eight minutes or something, and it was dead. So uh, yeah, there was even a law law court and a court case, and then the the, the, the protocol uh, was download. You could download the protocol of the research. What happened there? The system sent an email that nobody looked at, and so the typical cases, right? So you get some emails and you're not caring. So, yeah, we don't know actually how uh, we say that more than half of all projects fail, are not in time, but does anybody care? Is it a problem for the business or are they just complaining and it's more like a, a needle? Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, but maybe one, one thing is stories from. Uh, occasions where this happened <clears throat> and the other thing would be to take a look at the very concrete project we have and maybe try to play um, Advocatus Diaboli. Mm -hmm. With a disaster scenario. Yeah, so I for example if I, I I heard a, a guy talking about um, data uh, backups and so he said the best thing to ask is what would be what To, would you wish to have done if you now lose your hard drive, your notebook, whatever? What was the thing that w you would wish you would have done? And so maybe we can use it similar in for our project. So for example, if we say we have such a crappy code base regarding data access and we have problems there, no, data access maybe not so good, but something more business related. Um, The rules engine. The rules engine. Okay, we have a crappy rules engine, and we know 
if if marketing gets even more mad, we will have a performance problem in our weird rule engine, and we want to have a new one. We have to rewrite it. So, for example, just imagine what could happen. Just extrapolating a little bit the things that you observed in the past, and and imagine and maybe get real evidence of the existing code base. What would that mean? So. I I I like it. I really like it to take uh, to analyze the technical side of the project whatsoever, and then to see what could happen. For example, yeah. what would be the implication of the bad rule engine? Yeah. Okay, marketing getting mad. Uh, I can live with this, but uh, it's their job. Huh? It's their job. Yeah. It's like they're yeah. getting mad, but, having crazy ideas. Yeah. But does it mean that they will have a false analysis? Could be. It could be. And then they will make decisions on this analysis and yeah. then maybe they will... That's, that's why, why usually the data warehouse... It's funny, I never thought that the data warehouse teams, I know several, and, and they're collecting the data for decisions. They have no tests, but they have a really large focus on plausibility things. Mm. So they are kind of cross-checking their data all the time. And if the data doesn't look as usual, people are complaining even before it could be a bug. So it's a weird mixture of no quality and high quality mm -hmm. um, because of decisions. So other things where we make decisions of uh, are risky. Mm -hmm. So it uh, could mm. be a potential mm. bankruptcy case. Yeah. And another thing we could do, we could um, try to collect situations where we were next to a big problem and we managed to mitigate it in last time, but we really were next to a problem that could have faced upwards, mm -hmm. could be seen upwards. And, but of course, then you are at the problem of the blaming. Because maybe if people in the room remember this situation, it's typically really easy to see where the problem comes from and maybe mm -hmm. stick a name to it. Mm -hmm. And of course, that could really be a problem if the communication and failure culture of the, of the team is not that positive. But I think that could be really good to say, look, as do you remember last release when we had to make this whole night to get it out somehow, the reason was this, and it could happen again, but maybe then a night would not be enough, whatever the story is. Mm -hmm. So maybe that could help as well. It's also speculative. Yeah. Sure, sure. Which is why we're back again on the bed, taking yeah. the risk. Yeah. And I have the feeling that the whole quality and entity and everything is uh, kind of, well, I'm heretic, maybe, even as a code cop, horrible. But it's a kind of a bet, right? Or it's a uh, bet is a bad word. So it's we hope we have the idea that uh, it gives us better quality and we can deliver faster, and, but we have no proof. Yeah. That's also the reason why we always say we don't give too much about code coverage numbers, but it's about more the the trust that we have in the right in the coverage of the right portion of the code. But it's a bet again. So it's in code you trust? <laughs> <laughs> well that's true. <laughs> that's the truth. That, that will be the, the saying on his next t shirt. Next in code we trust. <laughs> I think it exists. And uh, yeah, and I was, you know, I was thinking of that. Do you know the black swan? 
book. Uh, it's, yes. uh, and it's, uh, I think this is also coming to it that would cover a certificate and other things that some things that are unlikely suddenly happen. We don't have that in code usually. We have that in, in infrastructure or, mm. or operating. System. What's the gist learning of that book? Uh, what is the learning of the book that uh, extremely unlikely events still happen, mm. like a black swan. So because uh, it's uh, covering, I think, a real uh, case scenario, like a real scenario, and in this scenario, several things uh, went bad at the same time, and then mm -hmm. the database uh, person was rang in the night, but then was some problem, otherwise he would have fixed it. And so it's a, a sequence of, of unfortunate events, mm -hmm. but still they happen. So that's, uh, at least that's uh, the, the, the subtitle. I didn't read it. So these sound like the, the most extreme cases then, like the yeah, sequence yeah. of unfortunate yeah, events. Yeah. Though, um, I guess your question, Olga, comes from the more the more average cases of technical depth that you have to impose or have to communicate to management or to whoever decision making. I would I would rather like management to have an understanding. It would be cool to have some kind of a term which is related to technical depth. So. So that they take ownership of this as well. Well, it is their technique. So it's their depth. So yeah, and then if... with the nearshoring and offshoring and, and the internals and externals, this is very easily like to... It's layered like, and yeah. then it's, not, it's abstracted away. It's abstracted. It's, it's like money in casino. It's just an abstraction. Hmm, it's an uh, extremely difficult question. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, 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 I absolutely liked the discussion and thinking about it. Thank you for bringing it up, yeah. Because that would be probably the next step in communicating with uh, stakeholders. Yeah. I guess, how can we bring this view to the next level, maybe even up to the CTO level, if we have access? But I think even for us developers, it's, it's an urge to be more explicit about the problems that we really see. Not just feeling don't like this, but what's give us numbers yeah. about anything to have something to talk about. Mm -hmm. Start measuring things, how they move over time. I, I don't think that it's necessarily just to bring these topics to the CTO. I, I was rather thinking it, of communicating this stuff to the stakeholders, to those who are interested in the product. Mm. So that they will have the understanding and the urge. Yeah, yes. I meant that. It was depending on the structure yeah. of your company that could yeah. be just a product owner or, a, or maybe it's the full company that might say it's mm. a CTO. Yeah. Well, thank you. Cool. Thank you for the question. It was fun. I would compare it to thought-provoking. So it's more sitting back in a chair on holiday and... It's a pipe. Right, and, and thinking the, the about the, the fire. Clients. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> thinking about all the big yeah. issues. Yes, I guess I wanted to. Ah, yeah, we, we have an idea already, forgot about it, yeah. Okay, so I would say uh, the hosts of Developer Melange and our very first guest are wishing you Happy, Happy New, New Year! Year.